This is the Going in Circles podcast, hosted by Horseman Chuck Simon. To become a sponsor, to suggest topics, or for questions, email goingincirclespodcast at gmail.com. And log on to our Facebook page, Going in Circles Podcast. Here's your host, Chuck Simon. Hey, welcome to uh, today's show. We are supposed to be live on Tuesdays, but Blog Talk Radio's website is down. So you actually aren't listening live, but we're going to go ahead and, and do the show as a regular podcast. And uh, we have a couple a couple guests today. Our, today's theme is racing history, and it's, it's something that I've I've talked about quite a bit. And it's uh, a topic that I think that that it's a pretty it's a pretty simple topic in the end. You know, we're talking about um, the great horses, the great races, the great seasons, the great trainers, the great jockeys of the past, and. Uh, how racing has really not done the best job compared to other sports at keeping those names and, and those stories alive. Um, one of the the issues that that we have in racing with regards to the history is, I mean, there's two, it, it's really twofold in that we don't have a whole lot of data I mean, the data exists, but it's not in a readily available format. Prior to 1992 on Equibase, where there is information, but it's not the kind of information that is going to that we're used to, and and it's not just a kind of a skeleton of a of a chart or a past performance line, as opposed to what we're we're used to now. The other problem is that there's not a whole lot of um, video of of races of the past, and, and that uh, a lot of the the video that we do have is not exactly up to par, especially nowadays when when we're so used to uh, high definition pictures. It's really kind of amazing you go on youtube and you look at at some sporting events for instance from the uh from the 80s and you look at the 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 pictures that we see now and and you can tell how different and just how much better and clearer the pictures that that we're used to now and um uh, you know the the advances in technology, the high definition has has gotten us spoiled, and and racing was of course like most things we we were a little late to the party with the high def um, scene and and the uh, racing in high def the, the it's actually a, an amazing difference in how, how really great the it, it's a sport that's captured very very well. With the colors, with the speed, um, in high def, but we don't have a whole lot of complete libraries of races um, for a lot of these great horses of the past. And one of the only ways that we can really um, 
keep those stories alive about the horses and, and the great races is, is through books and, um, and maybe even through long form, um, um, articles about particular races and particular seasons and particular horses and, and, and even trainers and jockeys of the past. And today we're going to have two of the, the very best. We have, um, a member of the Racing Media Hall of Fame, uh, Mr. Steve Haskin, who's probably the foremost racing historian of the last 50 years. Um, Steve's career has spanned uh, the decade of the 70s with with all the great, uh, I mean, all-time great horses running then um, right on through the the Sunday silence, easy goer years through through the cigar years, through the ghost zappers and and um, the zenyatas and and right uh, right up to uh, recent times. And Steve will be with us in a few. He's going to uh, give his thoughts on on the history since he's written uh, quite a few books about some of the greats of the past. He, he's written uh, I know about. Uh, but my dad's favorite, Dr. Fager, and uh, he's also written about the Triple Crown, and he's got uh, he's done a story or a, a book on Bob Baffert, um, and he uh, he's been there. He he was he's seen the history firsthand, up close and personal. So we'll be talking to Steve and and uh, trying to get his thought on on how we can revive some of the names. Um, of the greats and of the past, and, and, and keep those keep those uh, those stories alive for for the future generation. And uh, also, I mean, we're hoping to get some some great stories about uh, about his his uh, he, he was the Derby kind of triple crown kind of guy. But uh, you know, racing is a, a year round sport, so he's been uh, He's seen all the characters. He's seen all the horses up close and personal, and uh, and I hope we'll have a good visit with Steve. Um, following Steve is is uh, Jennifer Kelly, uh, who's not been doing this since 1970. She's kind of a, a recent uh, arrival on the racing scene, but she's an author and she's a, a racing historian, and she has written a book about uh, the first Triple Crown winner. Sir Barton, and she's working on another uh, book, another a new project, I believe, on um, Omaha and maybe uh, and, and, and another horse. I mean, we'll, we'll <laughs> she'll give us the details when when she's on. But um, she's done a lot of research uh, and a lot of studying about the horses of a hundred years ago. And the Man of War era, and uh, the 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 horses that raced during the '30s before the Triple Crown was a thing, and and uh, her perspective um, will be will be kind of interesting, especially compared to uh, to Steve, who who is more of a uh, if you want to call the '70s on a, a recent. Um, a recent view, but um, 
But Jennifer's is uh, she, she's. I tell you one thing. One day she was on. She had posted something on line on Twitter. Um, she had dug up some videos of Saratoga in the twenties, and they were amazing, amazingly clear videos. And of course, there was no audio, but uh, it, it was it was kind of unbelievable to to see videos of of the track back then. Uh, and they were from way up high uh, on the top of the grandstand. And, uh, I, you know, it was, it was kind of striking how things aren't all that different than they were almost 100 years ago. I mean, certainly there's a lot of different things. But but you could tell right away where, what you were looking at, what, what track you were at. And uh, we'll have we'll have her on and, and uh, we'll hear about uh, her research with Sir Barton and, and uh, her new project. And um, I know she's doing some freelance writing and as well. So I think it's important. I think it's uh, it's important to know where where we've been. And I think that one of the the weaknesses of our sport versus other sports, and we've you know talked about this on podcasts before. I've talked about this on the radio with Steve Steve Bick and his show before. How it's so easy, and, and you know, it's funny that everybody loves to do lists. And you know, here's the tie I've seen today uh, on on social media. A lot of the people who vote for these um, NTRA uh, lists of top ten for the Breeders' Cup Classic and top ten for this, and you know, there's always a lot of comparison of you know this this guy is 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 this and. Uh, this horse is there, and, and what's your ranking? Who's the top three-year-old? Who's the top Philly? Who's the top this and that? And when you do comparisons like you would do in other sports to players of the past, um, who is, I, I mean, put it this way, I can compare Ted Williams and Ricky Henderson despite never have um, seen Ted Williams play a live game in my life. Because of the stats and because of the the information that's out there, and, and I can say, okay, who is the greatest left fielder, Ted Williams or Ricky Henderson? And I'm sure there's someone that's, that's going to pipe in and say, well, so and so is actually better than them. But I can make a case for one or the other. I would have such a hard time making a case of affirmed versus citation because there's so little. Um, there's so little information out there and, and, uh, it's not readily available and PPs aren't available and it's just a, it, it's a weakness in our sport. And, and, uh, I think it, it's a, it's an interesting topic to talk about. So we have, uh, Steve is, uh, Steve with us, Casey. I'm here. Hey, Steve. How are you? Good, Chuck. How are you doing? Oh, uh, very, very good. Um, Thank you for coming on today. We we had a little issue with the Blog Talk Radio's website down, so we're not live, but um, we are still doing the, the podcast. And the beauty of podcasts are, you know, like the archives with with uh, Steve's show at the races, is that you can listen to them and download them and listen to them uh, um, as as you find time in, in your day and. Uh, I do appreciate you coming on. I didn't realize you were. I didn't realize you were associated with Steve on this, or you were doing a podcast. Yeah, we're not really associated with Steve, other than I've kidnapped Casey on Tuesday afternoons for a couple hours. But um, oh, okay. But uh, you know, the the 
one of my pet peeves is, is is that racing really has never I mean a lot of things in racing are fragmented but we just do kind of a, a weak job as an industry with the, the history of racing and the the great horses of the past and and uh, I, I was talking about you on the intro of the show that in my eyes that you're you're uh, don't blush, but uh, you're probably the preeminent histor- racing historian of, of the last 50 years that, that you've, you know, been able to... <laughs> you mean I'm old, does <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I wasn't, you know, putting it that way, but you're experienced. Um, I appreciate it. And I think that um, it's funny. I was talking to someone the other day, and I said, you know, some people in, in racing nowadays, they think a throwback horse is like Ghost Zapper, you know, <laughs> like... <laughs> Like wow, you know, back when Ghost Snapper was running, and and it's like, man, <laughs> yeah, wow, he had all he had all of uh, eleven or twelve starts. Wow, yeah, it's uh, <laughs> and you know, I mean, honestly, it's almost not people's fault, especially younger people, because there's not a lot of places that you can go and look up information on horses as easily as you could on, on uh, I was making the case about a baseball how, how I could make a, a, a an easy evaluation between Ted Williams who I've never saw play in, 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 a, in a game and, and Ricky Henderson as, as you know who's a better left fielder and I could find reams and reams and reams of information I understand that other sports are a little more popular than ours but still there's no the, the with the with Equibase really having limited data before 1992 it just leaves a huge gap in, in the the um you know the, the the way that we can just go about and, and and just get just to get pps just simply getting pps is is uh is difficult yeah well look at the look at pro football they have the most they have the most incredible stats about everything you can think of 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 you, you, you start you start looking out, just look at looking at the stats now. You know, not, not only do they have like completions, but they have like yeah, how often were you open at the time, or how much was the quarter, quarterback under pressure? And a sport like that, they give you more details now than let's say the sport thirty years ago. Racing is just the opposite. Racing doesn't give you any of that anymore, except maybe you know for like looking at handicapping. But as far as the history of the sport. I tell you, writing a column I, like I do, you know, when I, you know, I'm writing, let's say, anywhere from five to ten columns a month. I look at the responses, and they're all from people. And I'm, when I write a nostalgia common uh, column, it's all the responses are from people who say, "Oh yeah, I remember that. I, yeah, I, I remember Damascus, and I remember Dr. Fager, and I remember Kelso." I don't get anything from saying. Oh, you know, I'm only 20 years old, and I don't remember those horses, but I find this fascinating. I never hear from the younger generation. Like you said, I mean, they think they think an old-time horse is the gar. <laughs> yeah, right. And, and uh... They have no concept of what racing was like in the 60s and the 70s. And they can't even imagine the fact that the three most popular sports in the country, back in, you know, you go back in the 40s, 50s, 60s, was horse racing, baseball, and boxing. All, all three sports, which are, are under decline, you know, been replaced by, you know, football and basketball and, and, and mixed martial arts and stuff like that. But there was a time where horse racing was you know, one of the top three 
great spectator sports. I don't have to tell you of the Saturdays where we had 50,000 people at Aqueduct every Saturday. California had incredible crowds every Saturday. And even on the weekdays, I mean, the place was, the place was packed. I re- because we didn't have any, we didn't have any, there was no competition as far as betting. I remember when the racing form still used to put in that chart that showed that racing was the most popular spectator sport with the attendance compared to, um, you know, all the other, the other sports. Of course, now uh, a lot of tracks don't even keep a, keep track of attendance. Obviously, we wouldn't be. No, they're embarrassed to. No, but. Um, yeah, I hate to say it, but, you know, I, I look at when they're showing the last, the, the recent Belmont Park, the Belmont Park meet, when they showed the, uh, the stands and the empty stands. Didn't look that much different than when the, when <laughs> spectators were allowed. I hate to say it, you know. I mean, you get three thousand people at Belmont Park on a on a Wednesday or a Thursday. Yeah, you know, three, which three, is unheard of. Three thousand people at Belmont Park is like, uh, you know, it might, yeah, it might as well be one person. You, know, you don't you don't you don't see anybody there. No, no, that that's a that's a good point. And, and uh, on the show last week, we were talking about you know Saratoga, which was upcoming at that point is that that'll be the one track um mm-hmm. in keeneland a, a little bit as as well that when they they pan down the track and 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 the, the apron that when they're the, you know saratoga with no one on the apron or a few you know grooms or owners sprinkled in it, it just doesn't seem it just looks different i mean obviously the, the on the track racing part is not and I actually was thought, thinking this to myself this morning, reading about um, you know, some of the handle figures and things like, like that, where you could make a case that racing's um, move handle moving off track almost exclusively, where the vast majority of it is now off track, might have actually been a saving grace in that with this pandemic... If, oh, sure. if we were still depending on um, the amount, and honestly, it's not that long ago. I mean, maybe 25 years ago, you were probably looking at 70% of the money being bet on track still. And, you know, you know even simulcasting, full card simulcasting, it's not that long. It's not that old. We, When I was working for Jerkins, this is in the 90s, that was when they first started piping in a race from California or a race from Kentucky, it'd be a one-race addendum to the day's card. It was kind of a special simulcast event, and it wasn't like we were getting full cards from everywhere else. I mean, that that's not, you know, that's not 1965. That, that's 1997. And 1965, we didn't even have replays of, of, of the races <laughs> that track you were at. That's that, that's that's crazy. Nin- you saw you, you saw it once, through, you know, through through something that racing fans today know nothing about, called binoculars, and it remained in your mind's eye forever. I mean, I remember the races I saw back in the '60s, and I remember them as I saw them. You know, maybe sometimes you can find them now on YouTube and you know some old black and white footage. But back then, they really didn't start showing the replay of the race you just saw until like 1968, which is hard to believe. It, it, and you have to remember, too, is that when you went to the track back then, 
when you had 50, 60, 70,000 people at the track, you had win, place, and show, and one daily double. That was it. First and second race daily double. Everybody would rush to the track to make the double. That was the the most that is the only exotic bet. And they win, place, and show. If you had a two to five favorite, you could. There was no exactness to bet. You couldn't. You couldn't bet. You either had to pass the race, or you chose somebody else. And you had to depend on the handicappers in handicap races to bring those horses together. It was the only way you, you, you could bet. You know, a non-favorite. So you either bet the favorite, or you pass the race, or you took a stab at a long shot. But you could not. You couldn't say, "Well, you know what? There's a big favorite, and I'll I'll bet the favorite." You know, on top of a, a forty to one shot, the exactor, and make some money. Can't do that. No. You couldn't do that back then. It's funny what you're saying about no replay and and uh, you know, kind of one camera angle was the other day at Gulfstream. On Saturday, they had a, a big storm come through, as we have happens here in the summertime. We have right. these storms come through, and for 20 minutes, it's like you're in the middle of a hurricane, and then all of a sudden, they're gone. But the damage is done, and it knocked out a bunch of their cameras where they couldn't really, you know, they they start that mile race down that chute, and there's a tent that kind of covers uh, the start, the first eighth of a mile, so... The announcer couldn't call it, and, and, you know, the race was off, and because the other angles were, the cameras were literally down, they, they didn't have, they, they could not get them back up in time for uh, for that day's card. They, they ran with one camera, and uh, there was an article or a post on, on the Pollock Report that kind of, you know, really criticized them harshly about that, and uh, I think it's funny because, you know, now we're so used to having... Uh, so many different angles, and uh, you know, one of, one of the, the interesting angles that I like um, is when we're when they're doing a big race, a Breeders' Cup race or a Triple Crown race, and they have the drone shot from up top. I don't like it during during the actual race. No, I don't like well, it. It's okay if you use it in replays. I like it. But, That's what I like. I think it's great for the replay because yeah. it gives you a little bit of a different view of. Versus the pan shot of, of what happens. I, I hate that when they keep switching, uh, 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 you know, shots because they want to try to make it a little. I don't know what they want to do, but but I do like the replay of those because you can kind of see that the the horses are spread out further than than it than it looks on the pan shot where it kind of looks like a horse is lapped on another horse. You think he's uh, two feet away, and then you look at the the, the upper, you know, the, the the drone shot, and you see he's nine ten feet away, but. Um, you know, now we're so used to seeing so many different angles, and, and the cameras are so clear that uh, you know the pictures. Yeah, but the drone, the, drone, the drone shot in a live race, you have no idea where your horse is. I mean, they, every horse looks exactly the same. You can't see the silks, and you look at it. You know, they they look like little bugs. You know, running around. You have no idea what's going on. A lot of times, you'll see. You know, not only are the horses tiny, but they have shadows too, so you don't know where they are. No, I, I remember when. It's awful. I don't like you said. I agree with you. It's great on the replay, but just stay away from that shot in a live race. Yeah, it's very, it's very frustrating when they keep changing because you know the angles change and it's it's hard to follow the race sometimes. But uh, I remember in the nineties when Naira first started showing the head-ons of the races as well. They they give you the 
the head-on view of the of the horses, um, which at the time, I also remember Naira had uh, replay centers, where if you wanted a to see a replay of a horse, and, and of course they were still using VHS tapes, you could go to the little kiosk and write right. down the 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 race and and the you know the date and the, and the race number and you know they they a few minutes later they'd punch it up and and you'd watch the race over and and, and it seems like uh, I mean that seems like a million years ago now nowadays you know you can pull up the replay of a race on your phone in, in thirty seconds and and fast forward them and slow them down and and the technology exists and as I I was saying you know in the opening that. It does make it a little more difficult when you're looking at videos of these races of the past, and that you know your your eye is now used to um, a high def picture for the most part. And I, I made the you know analogy of even sporting events from the '80s in the '90s. You you watch them and and you're like, wow, how could we have watched that? You know, how could we have thought that was such a great picture? And you know, because we didn't know any better, but. Um, you know, now I'll what you, do I, no, I'll just say, I'll tell you something about the head-on, though. You know, like, they show that a lot now at Naira. You know, when it comes down to backstretch, you know, and, and you see the head-on. And it looks like the, the entire field is within, like, three lengths of each other. And then you hear the call of the race, and you'll say, you know, it's a gap of, it's a gap of you know, so-and-so's in front by four lengths. There's a gap of three lengths. And I say, wait a second, that, that's not the way it looks. You have no perspective of how close these horses are to each other. You can see how far off the rail they are, which is good, but you have no 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 perspective as far as the the actual length of the entire uh, of the entire field. You know what I really think that the the uh, the drone shot would be great for inquiries because you can see of yeah. well yeah. number one you can see on the turn because that's always been the weakness in that mm-hmm. it, it's hard to get a straight shot on a turn. But, yeah, especially like around the five sixteenths pole. Yes, uh, there's no way in the world you could really tell what's going on. No, and the sharp jockeys knew that, and they used it to their advantage a uh, number of times, and they knew right. that they weren't going to be able to get a, a a real good shot. But um, I mean, you, you talk about the old time replays. I remember when I used to go to Saratoga in the late in the late sixties. The big thrill was every morning I would go to the uh, National Museum of Racing. You know, when it was a lot smaller then than it is now. And you'd go upstairs into another room, and they had a pro- a, a projector and one of those old-fashioned screens that they'd pull up, you know, those white screens that they'd pull up, and they would show you the previous day's races. And that was like an, a thrill, because, you know, wow, I get to see all the races. And obviously they were, obviously they were all in black and white, and... You watch them, and when the horses come down the stretch, if a horse opens up in the stretch by like five lengths, the camera would leave the horse that won the race and go to the second and third horse because it was all about betting. Right. Because it was only about to find out who finished second or third to see you know if there was any photos. But like I remember, it was like if you watch now, if you watch a replay of Damascus winning the Woodward Stakes by ten lengths, you don't see him. They, they, as soon as they pass, like, the 8th pole or 16th pole, the camera leaves them and goes to Dr. Fager and Buckbasser for second. So you never see how far Damascus wins by. And that's, that's the way that's the way it was back then. You know, it was in this old grainy black and white uh, footage. But back then, it was a thrill just to watch the races from the day before. 
when was when did you first start following racing um where you you know not not just uh you know you watch the big races on you know the the derby or whatever when, when did you first become like a, a an avid fan of, of racing well i became an avid fan um believe it or not i was i was 20 years old at the time I w- it was in 1947 uh, 1947 i was born in 47 <laughs> in 1967 um i got introduced to uh to horse racing you know i i had known a little bit about it you know growing up and hearing the names of famous horses and stuff but you know, I was more I was more into baseball, and uh, and eventually, you know, football. I was into those sports, and I, I wasn't into racing that much. And a friend of mine, you know, he asked me if I wanted to come to the harness races one night. And you know, I said, "Oh, yeah, why not? It'll be some some place to go." And there was another guy there, and he was interested in flat racing, and he started telling me about uh, flat racing and talking about it, and I became immediately hooked. I started reading up. I just loved the whole concept of handicapping, listening to people, the betters at Roosevelt Raceway and the trotters talking about how oh, this horse is going to the lead and this horse is going to be your stalking horse. How do they know that? And I see all these numbers that they're reading. And I was fascinated by it. And I started reading up about the history of racing. Of course, I had heard of you know famous horses like Citation, the Man of War. And I used to have a board, a board game I've had the famous horses on it. You spin a little, you spin a little dial. There were a lot of horse racing board games back then, and you'd move up each. You had Citation and Whirlaway and Twenty Grand, I remember, and Cheapskit, and they would just move them up, whichever the spinner fall on. Anyway, so you know, I went and I, I just fell in love with it, and I started reading everything I could get. I went to Manhattan. They had a used magazine shop where. Um, where they would sell all these old magazines, and they had a, a, a pile always of Turf and Sport Digests. And I would go there and buy every one I could get, and I started reading up on, on, on horse racing um, through Turf and Sport Digest. I started buying the Morning Telegraph back then and reading up on that, and I, I became obsessed immediately. And I realized that, you know, this is, this, this is the greatest love of my life, and I was working on Wall Street at the time, and, you know, fortunately, my company got taken over by another company, and I just couldn't handle Wall Street anymore, and I was I was out of work. And finally, my father said, well, what do you love more than anything? And I said, I just love horse racing. He says, well, why don't you look for a job in horse racing? I'd never thought about it. So I sent a few letters out, and I got a response from the, you know, editor of the uh, Morning Telegraph he asked me to come in for an interview. And I came in for an interview, and fortunately... Um, I asked for the lifetime past performances of Graustark, who was a, a favorite of the person that got me interested in horse racing. And that's when I met the librarian. He said, you know, if you want to come work as a copy boy uh, for a while, um, I'm going to need an assistant in the library. I said, oh, my goodness. Books, racing books, racing magazines, racing photos. Are you kidding? It's like a kid in the candy store. And uh, I started as a copy boy coming from Wall Street trading over-the-counter stocks. Um, so I started as a copy boy, moved that way into the library, started doing freelance writing, and it all st- you know, went from there. So I got, I got lucky. I was able to follow my, my passion, you know, and, I, and, and I've never worked a day since in my mind. You know, I think that it's funny, you know, you make the Wall Street connection, and, and you talked about, you know, how you fell in love with the numbers and then and the strategy and things like that and 
I really think that... And the horses. Don't, the, the horses more than anything. The horse is true, but I, I think that a lot of... I think they're a lot pure, of times... They were pure athletes. We, they, 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 you know, they, there was no contracts and no nothing. They were absolute pure athletes, and they just gave you such a sense of... Uh, of just well being, just being around them. It was just—I couldn't describe it. It was just great. I don't think you know—you you know the feeling. Yeah, it is, and it's just different than anything else. But I really believe that there's a lot of of that aspect that when we try to attract new people, that we we kind of dumb it down a little bit too much, and that uh, I think there's people that are into fantasy baseball or into daily fantasy sports that are into. Um, you know, investing in, in, in Wall Street and things like that, that the data and the numbers are, are something that is intriguing to them and, and the strategy of trying to figure out the race. And, I mean, I was talking with my friend about um, about betting. Uh, I, I, I bet the Meadowlands, the Trotters a lot. And, uh, you know, it's easy for me to follow. It's at night. There's only two days a week now, and, and I can kind of, you know, keep a... It's it, it's something for me to do, and and I said my 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 handicapping is so much better than my betting, you know. Like, I can turn, oh, same with me. I can turn twenty four dollar winners. I'm a good handicapper. I'm a terrible better. <laughs> I said I can turn twenty four dollar winners into nine to five shots, but you know, <laughs> exactly. but but um, I, I really think that racing has has missed the boat a little bit in that that the, they try to dumb down. I, there, there was um one of the the marketing um wing of of the ntra that that had done a uh a video and, and this is not a criticism but it's just you know they were asking people what do you think's the first what, what's a good introduction bet for you know new people and and you know one of the guys said show betting and i'm thinking man show betting no <laughs> show betting is for little old ladies and and for you know for people that that you're not going to catch anybody's interest, like you said. You, you you fell in love with the sport and the horses and and the whole thing. And nowadays, it's hard to recapture going to the races with a big crowd unless you're there on a big day or at a big meet. So, the vast majority of racing isn't um, a spectacle anymore. And and you, when you go to a big track and there's not many people there. It's not really that appealing aesthetically. It's just kind of well, you know, geez, here we are, and where is everybody? But I think that I don't think that you know we're going to hook a lot of guys who are going to wind up being serious players or, or maybe potentially even owners if they're successful in, in whatever endeavor that they're doing. It, it, like giving them, you know, three bucks back on their two dollar bet, and I just think that sometimes we underestimate the. The sharpness of of uh, of the the younger people who who are I've been trying to set up a website for this podcast and I decided well I'm not a complete idiot I should be able to figure out how to do this right and I'm telling you <laughs> it's, you find some twelve year old if I found a twelve year old they could they could have said well you know and they give you that look when they when they do they fix your phone or they fix your computer and then they give you that look like you know like what are you right. stupid <laughs> like this is simple but um and i think that that's well, one well, you want to talk about dumbing down racing i don't did you ever watch the old the tv show the odd couple yes well there was an episode where uh, oscar is trying to get felix interested in, in horse racing and starts explaining to him about betting 
about about win, place, and show. And he tries to explain to Felix that your horse can come in second or third, and you get money back. So Felix can say, wait a second, your horse can come in second? He says, yeah. He says, yeah, but he probably... He probably has to be by like you know by two inches, right? You got to be close. He says no. He says he can get beat uh, twenty lengths, and you'll get money back. You know if you finish the second. And Felix said, "Be second. Your horse can can finish second. He can get beat twenty lengths, and you get your money back. And you've been losing money. All <laughs> I mean that's the way people look at it. You know, it's just uh, it's, it's hard to explain the whole betting concept to people." Yeah, it is, and it's just, uh, you know, one of the things I think that we we always have these these discussions in racing about, um, you know, what we need to do, and, and most of the time people come up with ideas that just literally can't be done, uh, wishful thinking, and I think one of the things that we can do is, is, uh, is, 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 you know, really, um, is show people uh, to talk about the great horses of the past and some of the great races of the past and and I think that if you have a little bit better perspective of of what had, had come before you you can maybe have a little bit of a a better appreciation of, of what you see because you hear people talking about modern day horses as all time greats after they win you know like one or two races and thinking well this horse hasn't even had a, a good season yet and and we're already trying to to put them up in, in, an, in an echelon against horses you, you go back and you look at some of the records i mean one of the one places is the that thoroughbred champions book that's getting a, li- a little dated now but they have the pps of the horses going back you know to, mm-hmm. the, to the turn of the century and i mean some of the horses i mean and from my era like when, when you look at john henry's PPs, and you see where he he raced at Hollywood Park in a Grade One on the dirt, and then uh, the week later he runs the Hollywood Park in a Grade One on the turf, and then two weeks later he runs in the the, the Turf Classic at Belmont, which is a Grade One, and and he and he runs first or second in all those races, and you're thinking that that'd be a whole that that'd be a summer and fall for our for the top horses that we have now, and back then it was a month. And I think today, 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 they'd be calling it uh, animal abuse. But, you know, you talk about you talk about there. There are no more major events anymore. They don't stand by themselves anymore. It used to be that when they ran the Metropolitan, you know, the Metropolitan Cap, that was always run on Memorial Day. Right. I'm, I'm getting it done. Yeah, Memorial Day. Right. Right. I, okay. I, okay. You know, you'd run the Metropolitan Handicap. Day, you know, you, you would get sixty thousand people there, and then you'd run uh, the uh, suburban handicap on the Fourth of July, and you'd get fifty-five, sixty thousand people. But all these big races now, they all lump them together in one day. You know, now not a big, not a big thing is to have the, the big card. So you know, they they'll, they'll run the Metropolitan, they'll run the uh, the, the, the Acorn, they'll run uh, the suburban, they'll run all these big races all on the same day because they they can't sustain uh they can't sustain uh, a, a crowd anymore because people are people don't come to the races they can't appreciate the big um the big races anymore 
Yeah, and I, I think but, yeah, the, like, I, I think they do it also, Steve, so they can justify charging the prices that they charge for the tickets and the seats. Because I, I remember as, as late as the '90s that you would go to the Belmont Stakes and and you'd pay six bucks to get in the clubhouse just like a normal day. I mean, you couldn't you didn't have a seat yeah. or anything, but. It wasn't, and and probably they were underpricing, and they probably should have raised it a little bit because it is a a, a feature race, and it's, it's a great day. But when you went to the Met Mile or the Suburban or the Jockey Club Gold Cup, that was the only stake of the day. People yeah. didn't care. No, it was always the seventh race of the day. It was always it was always the one race. But people got to know they got to know the claimers. They got to know the allowance horses. They just loved being at the track. They loved being out in the fresh air, sitting there with their binoculars. Nobody watched races from TV screens. There weren't any. I, I you watched races from inside. Everybody was outside. Everybody was sitting in the stands, no matter where you wanted to sit. When I was you a kid, ra- you would watch the races with you know with binoculars. Sure. And it would be a great day, and and you'd be outside in the fresh air. Nowadays, people are you know they're huddled up inside. They're watching. They're huddled up inside watching races on on the screen. And they don't get they, they don't get the full impact of what racing is supposed to be like. And you, you, you talk about horses racing a lot. I mean, you you see things now, you know, that that you've never seen in the past. For instance, like in, in 1968, I talk about Damascus. He ran in three major mile and a quarter handicaps. He ran in the Suburban, the Amory Haskell, and the Brooklyn Handicap. Carried 133, 131, and 130 pounds, and he set a track record of 159 and one in, in in the last one in the Brooklyn Handicap that still stands. He did that in the span of 16 days, three mile and a quarter races carrying 130 pounds or more, setting a track record in the last one. Can you imagine if a horse tried that today? People would be in an outrage. You know, and I, I remember you talk about you know. You talk about the Derby Trail now. Everybody wants to say, oh, God, three weeks. Can't. No way. You know, they, everybody wants four, five, six weeks between races. Now, bring up Damascus. Damascus was narrowly beaten by Dr. Fager in the Gotham. And then he won the Wood Memorial one week later. Can you imagine if Naira now scheduled the Gotham and the Wood one week apart? <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh... I know we can't ever get back to those days like that, but there, there's things no, like horses are made differently. I, I, I was, mean, you know, they're, they're not the same for for a, a lot of different reasons. I was talking on you the take a horse like Carryback, who was the first horse I really ever heard of. I mean, he, he Carryback won the Kentucky Derby after running 21 times as a two-year-old. As a, as a two-year-old, he ran 21 times, and then he ran seven times as a three-year-old before the Derby. And, I mean, that didn't stop him from winning the first two legs of the Triple Crown and going on to have a long and lucrative career. Made 61 starts, you know, in, sp- in spite of his roguish uh, owner and trainer, Jack Price, who even took him to France to run in the Arc de Triomphe. But the horses was, was, was stronger back then. And, you know, a lot of reasons account for that. Yeah, no doubt. I was talking on the podcast last week about how racing did itself a disservice by... It hasn't eliminated handicaps, but they've made there's so few handicaps left, and and even the way they're weighted is is um, is kind of silly. In that Bobby Frankel had a lot to do with it, and you know he <laughs> sure. he, he was he he was one of the first trainers to really leverage his power 
he was one of the first ones to really and and listen i know that there's always been guys that have you know there's always guys that are they're a little bit uh you know have a little bit of an edge over the competition they're they're you know they they have the inside track maybe they have a guy on the board of directors blah 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 i mean it, it, we all know that life isn't fair but he was the first guy to really more, more or less say well, you know what? You have this one race. It's a grade one race. It's a big prestigious race. But if you don't weigh my horse properly, in my view, I'm not going to run. And Bob, Bobby would scratch your horse over one pound. Exactly. And that was, you know, it made it tough on the racing secretaries because then the bo- <clears throat> their boss is going to say, well, how come this big name horse isn't running? Well, why did you put so much weight? And then there was the theory that, well, we don't want to wait our, why are we waiting our, best horses why are we handicapping our best horses and then you had the theory of well if we if we get a do away with handicap racing they'll they'll, they'll run more because they're not going to have to carry those high weights and all of that turned out to be 100 percent not true they they run less now anyways and and like you said with all the spacing of races but i i i, I do firmly believe that if we brought handicap races back of course, this would you know be done in a vacuum, which is not going to happen because you know you have various tracks that are competing with each other, and and uh, I mean, I, you know, we, we had last week we had a situation where the Ashland Stakes was was run on July 11th, and and uh, the you know the Grade One um, you know, Coaching Club American Oaks is run a week later, so you know both five horse field, and obviously there's a reason the Keeneland was running in July this year, not not. Uh, not eight, not August, but you know, I made a case that if you had handicap races and you truly handicapped the races, like when Monomoy's girls ruffian, if it was a handicap, that horse would have been giving sixteen or seventeen pounds under the old day in the old days. She'd have been carrying one twenty eight, and those horses, the 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 clay, the Calumet horses that finished second, probably would have been carrying one one eleven, one twelve. Yeah, they won't do that anymore they, for a simple reason. Is that back then there was no exotic wagering? No. So the, the, the racing secretary had to ha, had to handicap the top horses to give the betters an, uh, an outlet somehow on on, on who to bet. They got to had to bring the horses together. Yeah, that's a, it's a good and point though you make about the, the now that we have exactors and quinellas, right. we really don't even need handicap races anymore. But the because truth we is, can bring, we, we can bring the horses together ourselves. We don't need the racing secretary to do it. it, it would, back then, the racing secretary wielded a lot of power. Boy, you you looked up and respected those guys. A lot of trainers feared those guys. Now yeah. the racing secretary bowed to the trainers. No, you know, oh, you know, Atlanta will go somewhere else. It, it's it's gotten to be. Listen, I was a trainer. I, I get it, but. You know, the world where the trainers hold the power is not a good one. It, it, it's it's not a good one because what happens is everything is done to benefit the few, and we get these races where we don't. I mean, we had a stake on Sunday at Saratoga for three-year-old fillies on the turf, going a mile and an eighth. And Chad Brown, Todd Pletcher, and Bill Mott didn't have a single entrant. And it just seems almost impossible that those three guys didn't have a single three-year-old Philly turf horse to run in, in, in a grade two race. To get the three of them, it seems impossible. Chad Brown alone didn't have a horse in the race. It, it, it's it's just, I mean, you're probably talking 700 horses in training, and it's not like they got a bunch of 10 claimers. Their barns are not, um, they, they don't have a, a, a 
they don't have a, a, a barn that's full of, that's that's spread out, meaning that they have all maidens allowance and stake horses and very few claiming horses. But it just is is um, what's good for and, and I you know I talk about this all the time. People are sick of me hearing sick of hearing it, but it's just going to get worse. And when you have the talent uh, um, concentrated in so few barns, and it seems like it's even getting fewer. I mean, you, now now you have a guy like. Kieran McLaughlin, who's not in play because he's uh, you know moved on to a different career, and and uh, you know there's guys that are struggling in New York because of the labor uh, situation, and with the uh-huh. purses in Kentucky being uh, as good as in some cases better, you're going to see a, a real you know a real issue, and and it's it's just. We don't do a very good job in this business of having a, a summit where we we decide hey. People are going to have to sacrifice a little bit, but in the end, it's going to be good for everybody because no one wants to sacrifice. And sacrifice is something that the people at the uh, on the top of the food chain have to do because the people on the bottom of the food chain don't have anything to sacrifice. So it's always going to be an issue, but we, we really need to, to, to take a look at the way our backsides have become a haves and have-nots. And it's something that's so much different. I mean, when you first started in, in this business, Steve, um, there was no, I mean, it, it, the super trainers is a recent phenomenon, but you would go into a meet like, um, say, the Belmont Park Fall Championship meet, which was a very important meet that that's, you know certainly doesn't have the same luster as it does. I mean, how many, there'd be, what, 10, 12, 15 trainers that if they had a good meet could be the leading trainer? And now you go into that meet and there's maybe two. And that's that's not, it's not a great thing. I've said a long time ago, I said, you know, if you, if you compare it to baseball and the Yankees and the Red Sox are a great rivalry and they've had some un- unbelievable games over the years. But if they played each other 50 times a year, well, those games wouldn't be nearly as as compelling as they they are because they're just it gets to be monotonous. And I think that stakes racing in this country, on certain circuits, certainly has gotten to be monotonous. And it's the same names, the same people. And you you know another change that's that's made that I I've admitted many many times that I never saw this one coming. I could see the super trainer coming. I was at the sales in the early 2000s, and I could see the same guys were, their owners were signing all the tickets. And these guys were going to be bigger and stronger and bigger and stronger, bigger and stronger. But I never, ever imagined that billionaires would team up with other billionaires to be to race horses under the same umbrella. And I think that that is, is has kind of hurt somewhat. In that so many of these people and, and the money in the bloodstock is so much higher. And, and uh, you know, with Stallion's books going from uh, 40 to, I mean, I, I know they limit it now to 140, but that's still uh, triple what, what uh, Northern Dancers there, Mr. Prospector, were, were, were covering. And, uh, you know, with, the, with the, the money at the end of the, at the end of the, that pot of gold at the end of the rainbow for these graded stakes type horses. And everybody being partners, and everybody owning a leg of another guy's stallion or another guy's, you know, horse, and and it just seems like 
like like a lot of that competitiveness doesn't exist. And yes, everyone still wants to win, but it's just a little frustrating to see. But it's the it's the, it's the hedge fund mentality. You know, you have a hedge fund broker like Saul Cuman who owns like 10, 15, 20% of like hundreds of horses. I mean, is there a horse, is there a major horse around that that Saul Cuman doesn't have a piece of? I mean, if that's the way he wants to do it, fine. But that's uh, that's not that's not the way uh, that's not the way racing was. That's the way it is now. You know, like you said, everybody's you know Eclipse is teaming up with Windstar, and Windstar is teaming up with with uh, Starlight, and everybody teams up now. But you know, the one factor that I'm pretty sure of um, is the disappearance of the private stable and the dramatic reduction in homebreds. You know, back then the breeder often was the owner. And they knew their horses from birth to the racetrack, and the horses were allowed to grow and and progress in a natural and healthy and confined environment. Now you have thousands of horses being shipped off at an early age. They're trained to work an eighth of a mile in under ten seconds, and a quarter of a mile in under twenty-one seconds, which is way too fast, too early for young horses with you know with with still fragile bones uh, that haven't you know grown into themselves yet. And then go through the, the rigors of the two-year-old sales. Many of them having been already been in the uh, through the, the yearling sale. You know, pin hooking is a much larger part of the sport now. No doubt. And of course, of course, we have the infusion of speed in pedigrees and inbreeding uh, to a fast but unsound horse, like in Mister Prospector, who dominates the vast majority of pedigrees. We know, you know, we no longer have prominent sta- uh, pure stamina influences like that you would always breed to, like Rebo and Prince Quillo and Hales of Reason and Herbiger and those kind of horses. But they're, not, they're not close up in pedigrees any longer. Now we've got our dominant sires are speed-oriented sires, like Into Mischief and Spitestown and Elusive Quality and, and those kind of horses. So, you know, times have changed. Owners have changed. You know, the, the, owner, the owners used to be sportsmen. Now all these these guys like these hedge fund trainers and these young businessmen, and they get into racing as an extension of their business rather than a diversion from their business. Uh, that, that's a great point, and you know it's hard to really criticize people for making money or wanting to make money. No, I mean that's what they listen. That's that's what they do. That's how they got to where they are. But by the same but token, we we also have you, to. You look at names like. You know, Phipps and Whitney and Galbraith and Vanderbilt and, you know, Widener. I mean, you can go through the whole list of, of these true sportsmen, and they had patience. Owners, owners nowadays, they don't have patience anymore. You've got to win every race. So these trainers have to space the race out. God forbid they should lose a race because then their stud value goes, 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 uh, goes lower. And back then, you didn't have Coolmore and, and Darley and Windstar who who tries to, you know, get all these horses at a young age. So they, these owners nowadays, they want to make a, you know, they want to make money. They're interested in the bottom line. So they'll they'll sell the breeding rights to these horses at a very early age. And then before you know it, they're gone. They, at the end of their three-year-old campaign. And I don't have to tell you, you know, horses mature at four and sometimes even five. We don't see those horses anymore. Very rarely. All these good horses, you know, 
back back in the days, horses stayed in training at least at least until um, four, and they were syndicated. Yeah, but they were you know they they were syndicated, but the the, the syndicates didn't rule the horse. They got, they knew they were going to get him whenever they retired. Right, right. Well, affirmed and uh, Seattle Slew and. Um uh, even spectacular bid, you didn't win the triple crown, but I mean those horses all, you know, they're 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 known for being triple crown winners, or spectacular bid was known for actually losing the triple crown. But um, you know, as four year olds, the the horses were were even better. I mean, they were were dominant. And uh, well, how do you how do you think of how do you think horses like Affirmed and Seattle Slough got to be considered one two of the all time great horses? It wasn't winning the Triple Crown because they did nothing after the Triple Crown as three-year-olds. Right. If they didn't come back at four, they would be like, well, they would be like American Pharaoh or Justify or even horses that didn't win the Triple Crown, you know, like Smarty Jones and the Fleet Alex and those kind of horses that retired early. But the fact that a firm came back and if Seattle Flute came back and had spectacular four-year-old campaigns, that's what sealed their, their greatness. Seattle's lose was even sealed by a loss. Yeah. The Jockey Club Gold Cup. Right. But if they didn't come back at four, they would be considered, well, you know, really good horses. Maybe great horses. Maybe, but not all-time greats. When you listed the top 20 or 30 all-time great horses of all time, they wouldn't be among them if they didn't come back at four. Right. Are, are you still, uh, do you have a vote for the Hall of Fame? Uh, in, a, in a whole, I'm on the uh, I'm on the nominating committee of the Hall of Fame. Okay, Being, you know, I, I've struggled with with some of the horses in recent times. Um, Giopanti is, is a horse to me that when you he was a really good horse for for a number of seasons, but when you examine his record and he. <laughs> Like to me, he falls short. But I'm also comparing him to, you know, Hall of Fame. What, what my ideal of a Hall of Fame horse is, and now you, you have these shortened careers where where they just, um, you know, where, where horses have eight, nine, ten race careers. And Giopani obviously didn't, but I think he won eleven races, and I think seven graded races or eight yeah, graded races. Yeah, I don't know why the and, committee members, they, they, they actually put him on the ballot last, they didn't put him on the ballot this year, but he got enough votes to go on the ballot last year. My, my, I have a very simple qualification on whether a horse is a Hall of Fame horse or not. And it's, very, it's about as simple as you could get. Say the name. If it takes you more than three seconds to, to decide whether he should be in the Hall of Fame or not, he doesn't deserve to be in it. Yeah. It, it's, it's, you know, you, you give the name, you say, yes, Hall of Fame. Right. If you got to think about it, then he doesn't deserve in the Hall of Fame. Deserve to be in the Hall of Fame. The trouble is, we don't have a great. That, like you said, horses aren't around anymore to prove themselves great. So we're putting horses in that don't belong. We're reaching for any any horse that had any kind of qualifications. <laughs> it, so it, I, you know, I hate to see true. the Hall of Fame diluted, but you know, I, I look at the horses that we have. The committee looks at. And you and you see like there's like fifteen fillies on there, and you got horses that have run like seven eight times, and you say you know these these are very good horses, but they're not Hall of Fame horses. No, so we're putting in so we're we're putting in horses because there's nobody left to put in because we have no all time great, we have no Hall of Fame type horses 
anymore. So we create our own Hall of Fame horses. No, that that's true. It, it's uh, there's so many good horses too that that uh, in the past that uh, you know, there was a horse I talked to Jose Santos about. Um, going back to the uh, the Memorial Day uh, Met Mile as the feature, I remember I was there the year that uh, Criminal Type beat Easy Goer, and Criminal Type was was an exceptionally good horse, and he had a, a really good season, and, and people. Uh, he he was actually the the you know the champion older horse and horse of the year that year, and people like if you said to someone, um, you know, uh, oh you know criminal type was was you know a great horse, and you know people would say, well, whoever the modern horse of the day that that's it's you know the the fancy horse, oh well, you know this horse is way better than him and. So well, you know, a horse beat Easy Gore and Sunday Silence. <laughs> you know, he 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 won the Pimlico Special and the Met Mile and the Whitney and the San Antonio and the Hollywood Gold Cup in one year. And you you, you realize you, you realize those four those four races you just mentioned were were, were running four different distances at four different racetracks. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's just kind of one of those things, and and nobody. Um, no, like nobody even remembers horses like that anymore, and and uh, and I think that's that's the thing is that we don't even have the PPs for his that for 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 a horse like that. I mean that that, that was nineteen ninety. Yeah, and, I know this year a lot of people a lot of people were campaigning this year to put uh, Royal Heroin on the ballot, and I'm saying Royal Heroin. I mean I know she I know she won, you know I mean she she, she won she won a, a Breeders' Cup race, but. What else is a Hall of Fame? I mean, yeah, these are good. You know, we're putting very good horses into the Hall of Fame instead of really great horses. We have no conception of what great is anymore. We create greatness. Everything is that. Oh, this horse. This, what a great horse this is. No, he's not great. He's very good. And you know, I know it's become a figure of speech. But when you have to use that figure of speech to put a horse in the Hall of Fame, you better make sure that the horse is truly great. You know the thing is that if you take and you look at Royal Heroine's body of work, and you look at her wins, and you match her up against virtually any filly running these days, she's going to be better, <laughs> you know. And um, and and you're right. Like horses like Criminal Type and Royal Heroine, they they based upon their contemporaries, they they don't belong, but. When you compare their records to what horses do now, then you know these 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 fillies that, like you said, they have seven race careers and they never even race against the boys and and they win some you know the they can win uh, maybe they'll they'll maybe you know I think that one of the the issues that we have is that um, you know you, it's not just you. You're the horse you're looking at. It's it's the competition as well because we don't have handicaps. And what if what what do modern day horses? What can they do to really stand out? And they're not going to be weight carriers. And oh, the big horses duck each other all the time. And everyone's trying to make it to you know the Breeders' Cup is like the last step uh, uh, on the ladder where where you can't really duck anymore. But it's the same thing with the Kentucky Derby. 
Trainers don't train their horses to win the Kentucky Derby anymore. They train them to get them there. Yes. That, that, you know what I mean? Because, because, because the, that's what the owners want. The owners want to run the Kentucky Derby. They don't care if, they have, if they're going to win or not. They want to be part of the Derby experience. So the, trainers, the owners put pressure on the trainers to get them to the Derby. And to get them to the Derby and winning the Derby is two different things. You've got to train them differently. You've got to train them harder. That's why Bob Baffert knows how to do it, because he trains his horses like the old-fashioned trainers do. Yeah. Uh, you, you've got to call out the weak ones, and you've got to put pressure on the uh, on the strong ones, and the ones you know, the ones that can withstand the pressure. Those are the ones that get to the Derby. But you've got to put a foundation under them. You got to get them sharp. You got to get them fit, and you've got to accept the loss. You got to build. It's a building block. You know, nowadays, if if, if if a horse should lose a Derby prep, she should get beat in March in the San Felipe, or gets beat in the Fountain of Youth. Oh, God forbid, it's the end of the world. No, it's not the end of the world. You don't want a horse peaking in, Mar- in February and March. You want to build them up. Look at a horse like Giacomo. I mean, John Sheriff's old-fashioned trainer. The horse didn't win a race all year. John Sheriff said he didn't care. He didn't care. The, you know, the, the owner, Jerry Marks, didn't care because he's an old-time owner. But every race, the horse got bit stronger and stronger. And the key is to have him peak on the first Saturday in May. And nowadays, you get horses peaking... Oh, you don't want a hundred. Oh, he only ran a ninety-one buyer. Yeah, well, ninety-one buyer—that's fine. He'll run his hundred and ten buyer or hundred eight buyer in the Derby. I don't want him running it now because you run it now, you can't sustain it. And now you've got the sheets, you know, the thoroughbred and the Braggerson numbers. And if your horse runs too fast, he's going to bounce. I don't remember horses bouncing. Your horse ran a good race. He came back two weeks later, ran another good race. I remember the chief told me one day we were sitting there and he had read something that a trainer had said about a horse had run a real big race and um, the trainer had said something to the effect of, wow, he ran so huge, now i got to give him a lot of time off to recover. And he said, that's the one thing, and this and this is in the 90s, and, and uh, he said, this is the one thing that's changed dramatically. He goes, when we had horses in sharp form, we kept running them. He goes, how do you think I beat Secretariat with Onion? He goes, the Onion had just set the track record for six and a half. And he was, you know, razor sharp form like a week a week or a week and a half before that. And he goes, nowadays, when a horse runs a big race, everybody is in top form. They, they want to give them time off. And it, it's just, it, you know, it's the opposite of, of how we always, we wanted to, to race horses when they were in good form, not not yeah. race them when they're in good form. And I think I remember what you're saying. I remember a few years ago, a horse named Destin. He won the Tampa Bay Derby. And he got a really, really fast Ragason number. And one of the owners of Destin owned the Ragason sheets. So what do they do? Instead of running them again at some point, they say, oh, you can't run them now. He's going to bounce. So what they did is that they ran him in the Derby with a seven-week layoff. And he ran like it. He came up dead short in the Derby. And he came back and ran a big race in the Belmont Stakes. But in the Derby, he, he was dead short because they waited seven weeks. Yeah. And people want to say, and now people say, oh, I hate the Preakness. Nobody wants to run the Preakness. It's only two weeks. Horses who win the Derby run better in the Preakness than they do in the Derby. You mm. go look it up. You know, going back to John Sheriffs, you know, John Sheriffs is a, is a really, really good trainer. When he was training back in the day for that 505 farm, and they had a program where they wanted to win with horses first time out, he, he was as deadly of a, a first time out trainer as as we saw. And and now he you know he trains for different outfits, and his his philosophy has completely changed. And and there's not a lot of guys that um, 
that can do that. There's not a lot of guys that can can do both. You know, can can bring a horse along slow or get him cranked up to win first time out. And especially these days when you see uh, outfits with so many horses, they just they, it's impossible to to individually train horses when you've got that many. And yes, once they reach that cream of the crop, top of the they, they've shown they have extreme uh, talent. Then sure, you can individualize it a little bit, but they sift. You know, they go through, and, and a lot of horses fall by the wayside, and that that would have probably had different careers had they been with a trainer that may have tried something a little different with them, as opposed to um, a big trainer who, who uh, in some cases, you know, you have two or three divisions. They're not even seeing those horses every day, and and I mean, a, a human can only has the capacity to uh, concentrate, uh, you know, and, and and keep track in his mind of so many horses. It's one thing that Steve Asmussen has that computer brain of his that he's able to uh, remember. You know, he's got that photographic memory, which is which is one of the reasons why he's able to do what he does. Uh, on that vast scale, I mean, you know, he he's got five claimers running in New Mexico, and he's got fillies running in Dubai. I mean, it's just it's just insane. But uh, you know, the philosophy of of training has changed, and like you said, getting to the Derby is is everything. I, I remember Mr. Ramsey told me one day. He said, you know, one thing about horse racing is given me it's it's made me somebody. He said, before horse racing. I never got a person wanting to interview me. I never was on TV. Nobody ever knew who the hell Ken Ray is. Just some hillbilly from from down in, in southern Kentucky, and and you know had a little bit of money. And he goes, this, you know, the, the Derby, the attention, the the um, you know, the focus, the parties. The and I mean, listen, they've they've created it into a world class event. There's no doubt that it's been a massive success. But like you said. The trainer's job isn't even to win the Derby; it's to get there and then let it, let the chips fall where they may. And uh, listen, two, I have to tell you, two of the greatest trainers of all time were Alan Jerkins, of course, and John Nayrud. Between them, I don't even think they ran more than maybe three horses between them in the Derby. Right. Then you know they 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 didn't they didn't have to win the Derby. They didn't run pressure to win the Derby. And you look at, like, you talk about the trainers now and how everything is diluted. You look at, and, you know, it's either Chad Brown or you give it to Bob Baffert or you give it to Todd Pletcher or you give it to Bill Mott. Allen never got those horses. He never got horses like that. I mean, you know, he got all the Jack Drivers horses by Bogar and all these obscurely bred horses. What he was, can you imagine if Allen had, had, had the horses that Chad Brown and uh, Bob Baffert and Todd Pletcher have, no. what he could have done with them? But the thing is, Allen was not a salesman. He didn't go out and sell himself. He wasn't going to lower himself to say and try and get horses from people because he wasn't going to. He wasn't going to take any orders. He, he didn't. You know, I don't have to tell you what kind of owner Jack Dreyfus was. He never questioned Allen. Allen did what, did what he wanted to. Right, which but is why they were successful. You can't do that. You got to go with the you know what the owner says. You got to get him to the Derby. You got to do there. Jimmy and I laugh sometimes. We talked about you know things that happen these days. It's like, can you imagine? <laughs> can you imagine if you told the chief that, <laughs> like, you had to get permission from the the state vet to work your horse? What? <laughs> I can't tell you how many times Steve, where we we'd have a, a horse and he'd he'd put the horse down to work and 
and the, and he would just put W. You know, he didn't put five eighths or three quarters or you know what it, what it was going to be. Just be work. Just get him ready. He said so. We we'd put him in the ice tub and we'd rub him down with the the liniment and we'd put the blanket on him and jog him and get him all warmed up and the jockey'd come and um, get on him and off they'd go out and be on the pony and they'd, they'd leave the barn and I can't tell you how many times five minutes later the hear the horse you hear the clip clop coming back and the, and the jock jumps off and said Alan changed his mind he said just turn him out in the round pen <laughs> you know so <laughs> here we are we're getting the horse all ready to, to work and then he's gonna go out there and we put the vet wrap on and, and spend 45 minutes getting this horse prepping this horse for this work and then the well, horse winds up running around the round pen because he just changed his mind and uh, it, it's just uh, he, he was the training was an art an art form for him and uh, and a lot of other trainers of that of that era and uh, well to me to me the greatest training job I I ever saw in my life to this day is what Alan did with uh, with Prove Out I mean here's a horse that had won three of twenty seven races uh, a maiden and two allowance races never run in a stakes race Alan Alan gets the horse. And he worked with him. He did so many things with that horse. I mean, he, he mentioned all the things that he did, all the equipment that he tried that that he used on the horse, and to get that horse. Then he runs him in the. He runs him after he beats Forgo in an allowance race. Sets a track record at Saratoga. He runs him in the Chesapeake Handicap. He thought he had to figure it out because the horse locked in all the time, and he thought he had him fig- figured out. He ran him in the Chesapeake Handicap at Bowie. And the horse goes over as the nine to five favorite. And what does he do? He bears in and bounces off the rail and runs up fifth as, as, as the nine to five favorite. So what does Allen do? He runs him against Secretary <laughs> at a mile and a half in the, in, 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 in the Woodward. And it's like, what the hell is he doing in this race? But the way he trained him for that race. And then he comes back again after beating Secretariat. Running the second fastest mile and a half in history, uh, second to Secretariat. Then t- comes back and then beats Reaver Rich, running him into the ground in the two mile Jockey Club Gold Cup. And I remember where Allen worked that horse. He worked him a mile and a half, and then he would then, it, then he would two minute lick him, and then at the end of the two minute lick, he, he he'd have Reeves a half of forty seven. He worked a heck out of that horse after the Woodward, and then he comes back in the Jockey Club Gold Cup. And he, again, he, he bounces off the rail in the race. He still comes home in 24 and change and wins off by himself <laughs> by four and a half lengths and runs the second fastest Jockey Cup Gold Cup to, to Kelso. I mean, it was unbelievable training job. But that year, I mean, what Allen did that year, I mean, starting the year off, you look at the horses. He had horses. He had Prove Out, who had done nothing. He had Onion, who had really done nothing. It was just an allowance horse. He had Poker Knight, who had run in like $17,000 claiming races. He had Step Nicely, who had run in like in, in like eighteen twenty thousand dollars $20,000 claiming races. He had a horse, uh, Verti, that, that, that had not done nothing. He had King's Bishop, who was just an, a, you know, a nice, ordinary horse. By the end of 1973, every one of those horses had won a grade one stake. It, it, it's like unheard of. You know, that nicely wound up beating four go in the stake race. Poker Knight beat number to count in the stakes race. These are seventeen thousand dollar claimers. It's crazy. I, I'm gonna. Um, I'm going. To, uh, I, I have planned that at some point. I haven't got everything together yet, but I'm gonna have a show on, on the chief. I'm gonna have Jimmy on and 
a couple other guys and uh I'd like to have I'd love if you could you could join us too and uh just to talk about um so many I mean there's so many stories. God there's so many stories. And um he used to tell us stories uh, you know, he he was very he seemed like very unapproachable because when he was training horses, his mind was, was going 100 miles an hour and he was thinking of this and he was thinking of that and he's trying to figure things out in his head. Because I, I tell you, even at, when, when Jimmy had left and it was and I was his, you know, the main assistant, there was a lot of times that he would enter horses and, and we would have no idea that we'd find out the horses in the race when the overnight came out. And, you know, uh-huh. he, and he would change his mind at the last minute. And uh, I remember... The year um, Wagon Limit won the Jockey Club Gold Cup, it was a it was a slow day, and he um, it, not not that day, but the, a couple of weeks prior to that, he comes back early, and I was sitting there eating lunch in the office, and he comes back like one thirty, and he, he never used to come back that early. So he had his routine. He would go home, he would eat lunch, he would take his nap, then he would get back up, then he would come there, we'd pick weeds, and we'd go do this, and we'd feed the horses. So he came back in about 45 minutes early, and I'm like, man, what's he doing early? I'm thinking, man, maybe he got in a fight with Liz or something, you know? So he looks at me when he comes in, and he shakes his head, and then he goes in the back, and he slams the door, and I'm like, man, I don't know. You know <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what he's so pissed off about, you know? I mean, we didn't ride any, you know, it wasn't like a jock blew a race or anything. There's nothing going on. It's a dark day. And he comes out, and he says, I'm, this game is getting too, it's, it's passed me by. I, I, I just blew a, a million-dollar race, and he walked down the street. <laughs> yeah, he, he always said the game passed you, me you by. You know, a million-dollar, I just blew a million-dollar race. Uh, and I'm thinking, what the hell is he talking about, you know? So I finally cornered him, and I said, what is your problem? Like, wh- like what's going on? Like, wh- why are you so miserable, and why are you here so early? And he said, I forgot to put the horse in. And I said, forgot to put who in? Wagon limit. In where? Oh, they had a four other than and it went. You know. So it was a mile race. And um, I said, well, you know, why don't we just work them a mile? I mean, it wasn't like we didn't do that all the time anyways. And, you know, he grumbled. And then he come back like a half hour later. And he said, well, call Davis agent. Get him over here tomorrow. So worked them. And, uh. You know, you know how it worked out. <laughs> he winds up beating uh, Skip Away and Gentleman, and and uh, yeah, and, and and winning. You know, uh, it, it was kind of a it was it was an unbelievable. I mean, it was dark by the time the, we got the you know by the time the race was run, it was almost dark. But uh, I remember he was sitting in uh, in the office, and this is probably about it was probably close to eight o'clock that night. Pete Anderson had just come out of the office, and you know, it was an old friend of his, and. And I walked in and I said, and I said to him, I said, well, I guess he didn't blow that million dollar race after all. <laughs> and he just laughed and he laughed and he laughed. And then, and, and that, that was like, th- those were the moments that really people, you, you know, that, that's what I remember. Like those kind of things. And, and uh, there, I, I've got a million other stories and, and I really want to have a show that's dedicated just to Alan and, and, uh, yeah, that would be great. All, I all the, million, I got, you know, I'm sure, obviously, you do, but yeah, I've got a million. Uh, I got a million Allen stories. Well, we're, we're, I, I, I went to his house a few times and sat sat down with him, and he went over. Thirty times was supposed to put out a book on the greatest trainers, and they had me do Alan Turkins. Um, and the book, unfortunately, never got published, but I still got my whole manuscript. 
from there, and he went over every horse. And the thing is, it, he can go back to horses like you know, you know, like Max Sparkler and these <laughs> old horses, and tell you what they worked in for a race and what the fractions were. He remembers everything. But he went over every one of his horses, um, Blessing Angelica and Onion, and I mean all these early horses, and. He told stories about every one of them, and I still I still have all of those uh, stories. Yeah, we, we, we definitely. You know? and we like definitely you said, he was that. he was unapproachable, and I I always knew, knew that. You know, I never bothered him. You know, when he was training, he was in another world. And as soon as training was over, you know, he'd come over and says, uh, "So you go to King Umberto tonight, huh? You want to go to King Umberto tonight?" And I said, "Yeah, sure." You know, we go out to dinner at night, and he tells stories, but. The thing about Alan is that he loved to complain. You know that. Oh, I mean, yeah. he, 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 he enjoyed it, I think. <laughs> he enjoyed, he enjoyed c- complaining, even though he was right in everything he complained about. I, I thought one of the first things... Um, he saw, he, excuse me one second. He saw, he, 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 he saw Pletcher come along and have all the success. And he'd say, well, I, you know, I guess he's doing it the right way. I'm not doing it the right way. You know, I'm doing something wrong. He's doing something right. You know, Steve, that's the Steve, way Alan would... Uh, when I went when I went to work for him because I had always I had worked for for Nick Zito and, and and Wayne Lucas and Tom Skiffington and and he used to call them the fancy guys you know it struck me how self conscious he was about his training like I said to him one day I go you know if we started walking horses backwards down the shed row people would start doing it only because you do it ah that's blah. I said I'm telling you I said you know how many people ask me like what what does chief do for this what did he do for that what did he do for this not not grooms other trainers and and uh he did he was a trainer's trainer he, I mean yeah. all the trainers you ask him who's the greatest trainer ever the trainers will tell you it's Alan Turkins yeah Steve I appreciate your time today and uh we are definitely going to do that show I just have to get everything lined up and uh for sure that'll be a that'll be fun well, I appreciate your time yeah, and uh, a lot of train, a lot of trainers you can talk to. Well, uh, I, I tell you, one of the guys you can bring on there is Mitchell Friedman. He's got all kinds of Allen stories, sure. great stories. Yes, sir. All right. Well, thank you, Steve. And uh, okay, it's my appreciate pleasure. it. Take care, Chuck. You got it. That was Steve Haskin, a Hall of Fame writer. And uh, coming up, we have a future Hall of Fame writer on uh, for our next guest. Uh, Jennifer Kelly. Jennifer, are you there? Hey, how are you guys doing? <laughs> we're, we're doing good. We, we 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 let Steve go. We we had him on long enough. Uh, I, I heard I, I heard the tail end of it. I, everything technically started working finally, and so I got to hear a little bit of you guys talking about Alan Jerkins. So that's always a fun conversation. Yeah, we're we're gonna do a show just on Alan. Believe me, we could probably do ten hours, um, but. Uh, I'm glad that you uh, you're able to join us and oh, f- for people. To- anytime, I, I as I've said before, I am available anytime. <laughs> well, I'm more than happy to talk. For people that don't know, Jennifer wrote a book about uh, about Sir Barton, who is uh, who was the first Triple Crown winner. The book was uh, called Sir Barton and the Making of the Triple Crown, and it's available um, pretty much everywhere, right, Jennifer? Yes, you can. I found it at Barnes and Noble. Um, I know you can get it at Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Books a Million. Um, if you want to get and be thrifty like I am, you can go through my publisher, who's currently doing a warehouse sale, and the book is part of that sale as well. So. Okay, well that's that's great. Let's um, 
Steve Haskin is one of those guys that uh, he's always been around. So I didn't mm-hmm. really feel like I needed to do too much introduction for Steve. Right. But um, tell me, how did you get involved in, in, in racing? Because you, you, you list yourself as an author and a racing historian, right? Yes. So how did you, uh, you know, when did you first get interested in horse racing? Okay, the my first interest in racing came because when I was in elementary school, I had a teacher read the Black Stallion to my class. And I have been a voracious reader since I was a child. And I she read the first book, and I immediately went home to my mother and begged her to let me spend every single cent of my allowance to buy more Walter Farley books. And then... You know, watched the movie and then happened to, right about that time, catch Racing Live on television, which I believe would have been a Breeders' Cup, probably the 1987 Breeders' Cup, but I can't tell you for sure because it's kind of vague in the memory. I just remember watching live racing on television and really just falling in love with the sport. And this is right about the time they opened the Birmingham Race Course, or the Birmingham Turf Club, as it was known then, um, in Birmingham, Alabama, where I grew up. And so I had one of my um, aunts take me out to the racetrack and and let me spend the day there um, watching um, live racing. So this was 1988, 89, when all this took place. And I've just been a sucker ever since then. Like, I'm I'm all in. <laughs> Yeah, the Birmingham Turf Club, uh, I remember when they were building it, and the chief attraction was that uh, that Georgia was never going to get parimutuel wagering, which they still don't have, mm-hmm. and that with its proximity to Atlanta, they were going to get a bunch of people from Atlanta because there was a lot of, a lot of people, that, there, there was thought to be a lot of interest in racing, in Atlanta, but uh, it never really, it never really came to pass. And it sounds like you got involved in racing just after um, probably the the, mace, the most famous horse uh, to run at um, at Birmingham would was uh, the great Lost Code, who won the um, uh, the the Alabama Derby at Birmingham. Oh, yeah, that was. I don't remember that happening. I know that it did because, you know, I obviously went back and, and read stuff about it. But, like, you know, at the time I was a child and my parents were scandalized by the fact that I wanted to be involved with horse racing. Right. <laughs> and, and I also get to go to the track. My mom wasn't really thrilled about the whole prospect. But, see, now that I've, you know, published a book and I've been into it for a long time, they get it. But at the time, my mother's like, you know, you're you're 12, you don't really need to be at the racetrack, and I was over there like, there's no other place I want to be, so it was lucky that we didn't live near the racetrack, because I probably would have just disappeared at opportune moments to go, like, you know, beg, borrow, and and whatever, to get a job walking hot or doing something like that, so right. I know that would have happened if I'd had the opportunity. You know, it's funny, is you know, you bring up Birmingham, and, and I, you, you look at Lost Code's records, and, and Steve and I had talked about about some of the great horses of the past that whose record would would be um, people would be incredulous about how good the horses were if they had a record, and Lost Code is one of those horses in that he was kind of a, a how do you 
how would you describe it? Kind of a secondary top three-year-old at the time in that he wasn't uh, he, he wasn't a derby contender uh, and uh, the Alabama derby wasn't really a derby prep per se as, as a three-year-old. So he didn't really come to hand quick enough to be considered one of the elite three-year-olds early in the mm-hmm. spring. But when you go back and you look at his record, and he won a, a race called the the Hoop Junior uh, okay. Stakes at Birmingham, and he came back yes. two weeks later, and they won the Alabama Derby. And then he came, uh, he went up to, to Illinois, and he won the Thomas Nash Handicap at Sportsman's Park, which is another track that doesn't exist anymore, uh, uh, about a month later. Two weeks after that, he won the Illinois Derby at Sportsman's. Um, mm-hmm. he, oh, wow. Two weeks after, or uh, three weeks after that, he won the Ohio Derby at Thistledowns. So now he's up to winning graded stakes. Yeah. At Canterbury, at on June twenty eighth, in nineteen eighty seven, he won the St. Paul Derby, which was a Grade Three. He followed that up two weeks later at Arlington with uh, as he became a Grade One winner, and he when he won the Arlington Classic. Oh my gosh! Okay. He <laughs> then shipped to Monmouth. To run in the Haskell against, at the time, the two Triple Crown winning horses, Bet Twice and Ali Sheba, mm-hmm. and he ran. Uh, he put a huge, huge scare in those two, and and the, he 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 ran him right to the wire. He only got beat, uh, I think, about a half length. And and this is one of the things that drives me crazy in that we don't have. A, it's not easy to get a chart for a race like that, which is 1987, mm-hmm. not 1927, and. And that that was yeah. just one of those those really great races. Uh, he came back after that. He finished sec or third in the Island, which is a Grade One race against older horses. Um, mm-hmm. Three weeks later, and and then uh, he ran against the uh, older horses in the Pegasus. or no, a three year old. I think the three the Pegasus, the original Pegasus, the Meadowlands Pegasus. Um, he finished second, he, he, which was a Grade One, and he finished off his three year old season at uh, Philadelphia Park, which is not Parks. Mm-hmm. In the Pennsylvania Derby, which was a Grade Two, he finished second in that. He came back as a four-year-old. He won the Arkans, the Razorback Handicap at Oaklawn, which was a Grade Two, the Oaklawn Park Handicap, which is a Grade One. Finished second in the Pimlico Special. Mm-hmm. He, then he finished out his career winning the National Jockey Club at Sportsman's, which was a Grade Three, the Mass Cap at Suffolk, which is a Grade Two, and the Michigan Mile and an Eighth, which was a Grade Two. And <laughs> You know, like that kind of resume in 2020, they'd be putting up statues all over the place. And, you know, the kind of the sad part is that Detroit is no longer with us. Suffolk Downs is no longer with us. Uh, Sportsman is no longer with us. Pimlico, it took like a Hail Mary to keep keep that (laughs) going. Uh, The Meadowlands Thoroughbreds is not, I mean, it's nothing compared to what it was. Mm-hmm. Um, Birmingham obviously is is uh, is no longer, and um, you know it's like I think it's just a, a real pet peeve of mine that um, that you're writing books about horses that were running a hundred years ago, and right. we have a hard time with horses that were running thirty years ago, and uh, I think that um, it's something that really you know. I don't know how to change it. I don't know where the info exists. And and you being a 
um, a historian, I mean, person who does uh, obviously a lot of research, because I don't think you talk to a lot of people that were around in the Sir Barton days. <laughs> no. So you had to, to look everything up. And um, tell me, what was, how did you go about researching the book? I mean, where, where did you, um, where did you find information and, and, and what location? Did you use the Keeneland Library at all? I did. So you're talking about Lost Code and then and comparing it to, like, writing about Sir Barton. I think one of the things that we run into as writers is that when you want to write about a horse that exists in a certain era, your access to, access to information becomes the problem. So for me, ironically, it would be easier to access information, especially given where I live, to Sir Barton and now Gallant Fox in Omaha than it is for me to access information about Lost Code because I can find the daily racing form, you know, scanned and archived from a hundred years ago more easily than I can find stats and stuff from the Daily Racing Forum and other publications from 30 years ago. So I think that's why you get into this, like, dearth of writing about more recent horses, like more recent historic horses, because you do have this complication in accessing information. So to answer your question, yeah, I spent a lot of time at the, at the uh, Keeneland Library. I walk in there now, and it's like walking in cheers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Woo, Jennifer's here. Um, <laughs> I did that. Uh, the Daily Racing Forum has an archive through the University of Kentucky that you can access. Um, they've got, like, basically issues dating back to the origin of the Daily Racing Forum in the late 19th century scanned, and you can search them digitally. Uh, I use newspapers.com quite a bit. Um, that's That and the Daily Racing Forum are my primary sources. And then when it comes to outside of those things, it was a lot of, like, here's a book, and this book has got some really great info, but I need to dig a little bit deeper into this particular subject. So let me go and look at where that book got its information from and then seek out those sources. So now you've got me, like, here's, you know, going to Keeneland for the hard copy stuff I can't access digitally. And then here's this massive pile of books that's on my table that, you know, I have to shift from here to there <laughs> periodically to find what I need. And so I've got about, like, 20 or 30 books, just depending on the project, just to go through. So that's that's the basic, like, research. And then now that I'm working on Gallant Fox in Omaha, I can, you know, talk to family members that are still around and, you know, inquire about information and, and that kind of thing. Like, if they have any memories or photographs or, you know, memoirs or whatever that would be useful um i did the same with sir barton but because of the distance and time a vast majority of the family members didn't really have anything right so how did you choose sir barton i mean how how did he get on your radar screen well at the time in 2013 when i came up with the idea for the project it was Okay, it's 2013, and the 100th anniversary is in 2019. So I think I can, between this point and this point, research and craft 
the book and have it out in time to take advantage of the 100th anniversary. Right. So that was part of the thinking. The other part of the thinking was, as a you know, a longtime horse racing fan who grew up primarily on the Triple Crown, you know, I, I read a lot of books on the subject, and I felt like his story, you know, pretty much had the same um, set of information every time you read it. So if you read you know, most glorious crown versus down to the wire versus, you know, other books on the triple crown and you get a chapter on each winner, you get this like little overview of what their career was like and here's all the milestones, you know, this, 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 this happened. But part of the thing about being a fan is that, well, that's not good enough. I want to know what happened in between. I want to know why. You know, why did this happen? Why, you know, why would this happen? Because when I started researching it, you know, us, we assumed that you would win the Derby and then do the Preakness and then do the Belmont. And that was a natural progression of events. But it wasn't that case in his era. So it's like, why did he do the Derby and then, you know, hop a train to Baltimore to do the Preakness when no one really had done that before? You know, why did he stick around in New York and, and go in the Belmont when no one had really done that before. <laughs> so that was that was me just being curious and really wanting to get the story out there because I felt like there was more to it than what we'd been given. How, how long was it? Now, the Triple Crown didn't really exist, right, when Sir Barton won it. It didn't, I mean, it wasn't, like, known as the Triple Crown, Correct. That sequence had only been run one time before where, in 1918, War Cloud had run in the Derby, which was won by Exterminator, and then shipped to Baltimore to run in the Preakness and and won a division of that, and then, you know, went to Belmont and ran in the Belmont Stakes, and I think finished second. But before that, no one really had thought of those races as being a triple crown. Like, they had... uh, wanted a triple crown of some sort in America. And we've talked about it before where you had like the handicap triple crown and you had the triple tiara and all those that are kind of modeled on what the British were already doing. But our triple crown that we know of was not the triple crown and it didn't even gain that, that moniker until after Sir Barton had done it. So it wasn't necessarily like that, you know, HG Bedwell and Commander Ross went into it with, this is our thought. This is what our thinking is. We're going to do this, this, and this. Like, I, they never planned to put him in the Belmont. That was a decision that was made because of other mitigating factors. And, and, and you know, it's changed the course of racing history by doing that, actually. It did. It was It was funny. If you read the book, and I'm, I'm loath to give it away because it's such a, it was such a mundane thing that did it. But, you know, the reason why you stayed in New York was something that was really... At the time when I, I read the article and I made the connection, I thought, my goodness, like the entirety of our racing calendar almost is built around these three races, and all of that comes down to this. Yeah. Kind <laughs> of a uh, small thing. <laughs> I, I thought the most amazing thing about about Sir Bart was that uh, the Kentucky Derby was his first race of the year. As a three-year-old. Yeah. He made his debut in the Derby. <laughs> Isn't that wild? And I think Exterminator had done the same thing the year before where he had not run a, a race prior to that, unless I'm remembering it incorrectly. 
you know, they just, they trained him up to it. I, I can't explain why they didn't start him because they had started his stablemate in other races prior to that. But for whatever reason, um, HG, but, but Trevartan had been ill the previous autumn. And so I, I don't know if that played a role in why they had decided not to start him in the race. Right. Well, I mean, was he wasn't even the 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 best well I, I mean his connections didn't think he was even the best three year old in their barn, correct? At before they, the Derby. They were Or is that urban legend? They suspected that he was capable of more than he had demonstrated to that point. But in terms of, okay, he, as a consistent performer, Billy Kelly had been, you know, more consistent and shown more to that point. And they had another filly named Milkmaid who had also done rather well for herself. And then Commander Ross had purchased a couple of other three-year-olds. So, so Barton was one of those where, it, you know, he he looked great in the morning, and you you watch him work out, and like, man, there's there's obviously something there. But then in the you know in the afternoons when he would run a race, it took him a long time to put it all together. And by the time he actually did put it together, he that's when he was um, injured and then and then got sick, and so they weren't able to finish that education when he was two to make sure that he was ready for three. They just weren't sure what he was capable of. Yeah, and uh, the Preakness was four days after the, uh, the the Derby at that at that point, right? Yeah, I thought it was funny because if you read the uh, newspapers from the time, they talk about you know we're going to schedule it where the two races don't interfere with each other. <laughs> so they, they put them like, four days apart. <laughs> Feel like they're four days apart. I mean, at least it's not on the same day like it was in I think 1917 and 1922. They actually ran the races on the same day, so there was this sort of consideration of you know we're not going to run them on the same day because we don't want to be jerks. You know, this Maryland versus Kentucky, but you know only four days apart. You know, two major stakes races to be so close together. Now it would just be like no, there's no way you would do that. That's crazy. But then it was just yeah. Because people, horses didn't do it. They didn't ship from Louisville to, to Baltimore. Pe- people want to give them four weeks, not four days. And, and that yeah. back then you were shipping by train. You, you weren't, uh, there was no planes and yeah. they, they didn't have the big they, horse vans like we have now. And they certainly didn't have the roads that you would want to put a horse in a van and then ship it, you know, over. You didn't have the interstate. <laughs> and and he, he raced again right after the Preakness before the Belmont. Yes. Yes, he ran the Derby on May 10th, which was a Saturday. And then he ran the Preakness on May 14th, which was a Wednesday. And then 10 days after that, they were at Belmont. He ran in the Withers on May 24th. And then June 11th was the Belmont. So we got a big break between the Withers and the Belmont. Yeah, he got like an actual, you know, more than a couple of days where he he got to relax and and you know come down from one race before he started prepping for another. And the distance of the Belmont wasn't a mile and a half, is that correct? It was a mile and three eighths. I think it was 
about three or four years after his Belmont that they um, made it a mile and a half. Right. They changed so, it to a mile and a half. Yeah. And he set a record in the Belmont for a mile and 38. He ran it in uh, 217 and some change. So that was an American record at the time for that distance. Right. <laughs> it's, uh, it's interesting um, that... Uh, you know, he's kind of recognized um, after the fact as as being the first Triple Crown winner. And, and uh, like you said, how fate has 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 changed the sport. And the guys, I'm sure, when they were making those decisions to, to run him in those series of races, had had no idea what uh, what, what uh, you know turn of events they were they were setting they were starting up by, by doing by doing so. No, they had. They weren't thinking like that. They were thinking about the money right. more than anything else. Commander Ross had set as a goal that he would have the best racing stable in the country. And so for him, it was about, you know, winning races and bringing in purse money because he wanted to lead the owner's list. And he was willing to pay, you know, large amounts of money for horses in order to to meet that goal. And so... The Derby, or the Triple Crown, just was one of those, you know, happenstances that wasn't on the, wasn't something they were setting out to do, but it was a nice quirk of history that that's what happened. Right, right. And he wasn't all that successful as an older horse. He was, you're, you're a trainer, you worked with horses for a very long time, so you know the difference between sound horses and racing sound. right. So racing sounds for people who haven't, you know, worked with horses in the same way is, you know, you're they're just healthy enough to race, but they may not be like a hundred percent. So he he teetered on the brink of literal unsoundness pretty much every time he stepped on a racetrack. Right now he had bad feet. Is that right? That that he, was his biggest issue. He had very he had inherited very thin shelly hooves from his sire and um that made it difficult for them to shoe him so they would often have to put like a layer of felt between the shoe and the hoof to actually do the shoeing and he would he, he would lose you know shoes and races just depending on you know what the racing conditions that day and at three at four he had been really cantankerous about training again and so they'd had a hard time prepping him to run at four. And so I think if you look at his spring campaign where he ran, I think, five races in, in less than four weeks, I think that was about them trying to get him into shape because they really had no other way to get him into shape. Yeah, yeah. I, want, I wonder if they knew, uh, well, of course they didn't know, but I wonder what they would have thought that 75 years later that they would come up with a technology where you could actually glue shoes on horses like those and didn't have to drive nails and uh, it, it's helped a lot of horses. Uh, there's been there's been a tremendous amount of, of uh, advances in blacksmith techniques. Um, one of the one of the one of the really the innovators, a, a guy named Curtis Burns, who I'm going to have on a show uh, in, in the near future. Uh, is, is actually he invented plastic shoes, which, which are glued on, and um, mm-hmm. it's funny how, how uh, I'm, like I said, you know, those guys had no idea what they were starting. <laughs> they were starting <laughs> with him, and that they could only know that uh, 
you know, the, the Kentucky Derby to have 150,000 people on a regular basis, and the amount of money bet uh, on on that one race was probably more than was the amount of money that was bet on uh, for for six months back then. But uh, Sir Barton, he kind of um, he, um, he he kind of had a, a strange ending, right? It, it, he he didn't, you know. You think a, a horse of his caliber would go to stud and, and then would. Uh, would, would retire to a life of leisure, but he kind of he went off the tracks a little bit. Well, he we didn't have the aftercare opportunities that we have now. So when he um, he was he stood at Southern Virginia at Onley Farm in about 1932, I guess in their eyes he had served his purpose, and they had they decided that they didn't want him as part of their stallion roster anymore. And in that era. I guess they didn't have anyone else that was interested in taking him on as a stallion. And so the part of the patriotic effort after World War One was, you know, if you have a stallion that you don't want to stand yourself, you can sell them to the U.S. government and have them be available to people for their own, you know, use as you can take your mare, your Morgan, or your quarter horse, or whoever, and have it covered by the stallion. And then, you know, whatever resulting foal you have could be purchased by the military to be used as a cavalry mount. So they um, sold him to the uh, U.S. Remount Service, and he entered at Fort Royal, Virginia. And then they eventually sent him out to Wyoming to stand out there. And he, I'm sure if you are able to dig deep enough into some uh, pedigrees of horses out west, you will find Sir Barton in, you know, quarter horses and maybe some other breeds where he was, you know, he stood stud out in Wyoming and covered mares of all different types and, you know, had some of the progeny end up in the cavalry and then some of them, you know, end up with um, private owners. And I think at some point I read that there might have even been thoroughbreds out west that were racing with Sir Martin and their pedigree. But I haven't been able to confirm that myself. But that's where that's where he's buried. He's buried out in Wyoming. Um, after several years in the remount service, he died unexpectedly of colic. Wow. And so they buried him out in Wyoming. Wow. Well, I, I <laughs> like can't imagine that. I can't imagine that uh, no matter how broke the Zayats go, that the American Pharaoh is going to wind up uh, siring, <laughs> um, uh, covering Morgan horses for the United States military or, or people. But. It was definitely a different time. And, and now, I mean, you look, you watch like commercials on television and here's Bob Affert with, you know, Justify and American Pharaoh. And they've got, you know, tens of millions of dollars and breeding rights and this, that, and the other. And, and you know, in 1937, it just was a different time. Yeah. It was a different world. Different world. So. so you have another project that you're working on um, back in a, a similar time area. You want to give us a little hint about what you're doing with that? Yes, thank you. Um, I have decided as a historian that my area of expertise is going to be the Triple Crown, since that's really what I grew up with as a racing fan. And I know that it it um, just makes so many people really excited every year. People who are not horse racing fans necessarily get into the Triple Crown. So since it's such a, a wonderful entry point for a lot of people, 
in the sport, I wanted to set out to write books about Triple Crown winners that currently don't have long-form books about them. So I have decided to work on Gallant Fox in Omaha next, which um, tentatively is titled Foxes of Bel Air. And I'm really, really looking forward to this one because so far it's been a lot of fun to work on. And I, it's a nice change of pace from doing Sir Martin uh, to go with Bel Air and to think about, you know, 10 years after the fact, how much things have changed. Um, in terms of technology, this is when the starting gate becomes part of our um, racing scene and some other innovations set in. And I'm really enjoying this because there's a lot of the things that are familiar to us as racing, modern racing fans that become part of our our picture in this era. And uh, I just love Gallant Fox and Omaha. I think they're really interesting. <laughs> we don't we don't necessarily know as much about them as we do about other Triple Crown winners. So I'm excited about delving deeper into that. Well, that sounds like a fun project. Oh, I love it. I'm I'm having way too much fun with this. I can't wait for this book to be out. <laughs> well, that'll be great when, when it finally does, uh, when you finally do uh, publish it. We'll, we'll definitely have you back on, and we'll talk about about those two. There was, um, you put something up on social media a couple weeks back. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you about this. There was, it was video of uh-huh. Saratoga back, I think, in the 20s. Right. Where did that come from? That, um, I was doing a Google search for the um, 1930 Kentucky Derby because Lord Darby had visited the United States that year and had made a stop in Louisville to watch the Derby, the Kentucky Derby, which was, you know, obviously named after his family. And I had been looking for... Uh, newsreels of his visit because I was trying to get the picture of how it all looked. And I discovered that the University of South Carolina has this really deep and interesting archive of newsreel footage from, I don't even know how far back it goes, but I just started diving in and finding you know, lots of different things. And I was actually looking for, oh, I think when I found that um, that newsreel you're talking about, I, found, I was looking for which one who had won um, several states races at Saratoga in 1929 before he became Gallant Fox's rival in 1930. And I happened upon that newsreel of here is Saratoga in the late 20s. And, he, and it's not like 30 seconds. It's about 20 minutes. Yeah, uh, I, I, watched, I watched a bunch of them. It, it was... It was amazing to me that um, how uh, you know how the quality of the video was 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 really really good. I, I didn't even know that that there was video at that time that was nearly as good as that was. And and you know the irony is that uh, you know ninety years later you're, you're looking at Saratoga from a, a view of, up on the top of the grandstand that. You know, you, you look at the track now and you look at then and, and mm-hmm. it doesn't look appreciably different. There's there's a lot of similarities and, and uh of course it's it's you know, there are some differences but but uh it it was uh that that was an amazing video. I, I really was uh you, you know, they showed the post parade and, and uh and um 
it was interesting the, the the horses almost none of them wore any bandages and, and how and small it, the jockeys looked the jockeys looked small very small they, <laughs> i mean they couldn't all be big horses right and i know that back then that that you know we, steve and i had talked about handicap racing and and handicaps were a huge part of racing back then and then and, and the jockeys were were much much smaller and that the horses would actually get weighed in the in the 102, 103, 105 pounds, and, and even lighter than that on some occasions. And mm-hmm. um, so, obviously, the, the size of jockeys overall was probably smaller. But uh, that that was really that was amazing video, and uh, I, that was really I, I was I was I was kind of taken back. I, I really didn't think uh, think we we had video from from that era that that, that was that good. I know, I was shocked because you know, often I would find newsreels, but they would not have sound. And so you would watch, you know, events happen, but you would not have sound. And then, uh, you know, depending on the, the how old the film is, the, the quality of the video would be something else. And, oh, my gosh, to sit there and watch that. And, like, I've been to Saratoga, and so I'm watching this newsreel, and it, it's like it hasn't changed at all, you know. And I think that's one of the fun things about doing horse racing history is because, you might look at all these names and you might think, well, that was 100 years ago, you know, 50 years ago, whatever. But there's so many elements of those stories that are timeless that really are so similar to what we see now. And, like, some of the particulars change, but these, you know, these backdrops like Churchill in Saratoga and other places like that, they don't change the same way. Yeah, and so you know you can sit in a box at Saratoga, and you're seeing virtually the same thing that you know August Belmont looked at, and that the Whitney's and any other historical figure that you can think of that is that is a part of horse racing history has looked at that same vista and run over that same track, and you know you're connected to that through you know through that experience. It's just it's. It's fabulous, and it's one of the things that makes Saratoga such a, a touchstone for horse racing. That you know, people can go there, and you can sit there and look, and it's like Man of War ran here. <laughs> yeah, you know, Secretariat ran here. So it, it's, I just, it's it's so true. It's almost a, a mecca of racing where people from all over the place want to be there, and and it's such a unique spot in the town. I mean, I grew up there, so obviously I'm a little biased, but. Um, the town that surrounds it, which has grown a lot since since I was mm-hmm. a kid, but um, it's just still uh, you get a small town feel, and like you said, even though there's been a lot of modernization done, um, there's a lot different. Uh, it looks a lot different than it did when I was a kid, but in the end, it, it really doesn't. It looks the same almost, and and when you look at it from a distance. When you're on the other side of the track and, and you see the grandstand and, and, and just the enormity of it, how long and and and, and uh, you know the, the the grandstand up at the top of the stretch, you know from there it goes all the way down the stretch and, and now they have that new building mm-hmm. um, that's probably too expensive for me to ever get invited to, uh, but that <laughs> that goes you know almost past a, a, another eighth of a mile past the wire so right you just don't outside of churchill and, and santa anita and um and saratoga there just isn't really you know anything like that and uh you know you still get that that throwback that feel um of you know when the track was actually built in uh, 
in the eight, you know late 1800s. And I really hope that when they do build new Pimlico, that they will incorporate some of that um, vintage feel into whatever the track will look like. Because if you see photos of old Pimlico, it I mean, yes, it looks vintage and it doesn't look like modern racetracks do, but that's okay because that's one of the things people go for is they want to have that connection to the tradition. And if you can make it look like it did once upon a time, just add some of the more modern amenities to it, then you get that, you have that ambiance that lures people in. Like, I want to be a part of this. Sure. Because it, it has a connection to, you know, what my family experienced or what, you know, this other person I admire experienced or whatever. That's like, that's what I'm hoping for from Pimlico. So who knows? I ha- We'll end up with some other monstrosity probably, but <laughs> I'm really hoping for something <laughs> classic looking. You because know. that's one of the things that makes me love Churchill Downs so much is even though there's these ginormous buildings on either side of the Twin Spires, I can still go sit under the Twin Spires and be like, hey, yeah, this is cool. <laughs> That, that, that's very true and uh i mean it, it's a little bit of a sobering thought but we don't know how many more racetracks are ever going to be built in this country mm-hmm. and it was it was uh someone had put a, a tweet up yesterday or maybe today i don't know I, I lose track of my days all the time i think i might be I'm, i might be uh getting alzheimer's or something but um, I thought it was Thursday all day, but um, they put something about how they would like to have uh, like to purchase Atlantic City uh, race mm-hmm. course. And before I came down to Florida, I lived. Uh, we, we were we had horses in Pennsylvania, and we had horses on the farm in, in uh, New Jersey. And every spring, the last few years, when I was a little little kid, my dad brought us to. Um, we'd go to the Jersey Shore for vacation and. Every year, my dad would always lug us down to Atlantic City when they were racing at night. They they had a, uh, a short meet in, in August, I think August, into a little maybe into a little bit of September. But um, <clears throat> we weren't allowed to go in because back then the laws in Jersey were you couldn't go to night racing uh, mm. if you were under eighteen. So we would sit outside and watch the races, and, uh, and they had a little. Uh, like you'd see at a high school football game, little grand, little stands, you know, when my dad would run back and forth in and out. And, um, you know, they'd been running um, a turf meet, an all-turf meet, for, I don't know, a couple of days in the spring every year. And uh, it was a shame because they stopped running a few years back. And, and the grandstand essentially needed to be condemned. But it was still a big kind of sweeping grandstand and you, you could still feel like the uh you know the the old time feel to it even though it, it wasn't like a saratoga or, or a or a you know a santa anita that, that's been around for hundreds of years it, it still had that kind of a um for me at least uh a throwback to my childhood where where i i recall being there and i think julie crone had her bug back then that that's that's how how long ago we're talking but um Wow. It was, uh, you know, someone had said something about like, you know, man, I'd really like to, to, to buy Atlantic City, you know, and it was kind of an innocuous statement. And the truth of the matter is, uh, you know, I got to thinking, man, even if you could get it for nothing, right, the amount of money that it would take, 
to revive a track with if you didn't have some sort of alternate revenue if you didn't have slots if you didn't have even sports betting mm-hmm. how you know the, just the the unbelievable amount of money it takes to invest to build um even a functionary grandstand e- even a uh, just building the you know the barns would would need to be replaced and and even if you just made it a complete shipping type facility just the mm-hmm. massive outlay of money and it's just it's hard for racing to compete nowadays because there's so much other you know so many other forms of gambling that we just don't it's hard it's just it's just very difficult uh it's sad and and like i said i, I don't want to end on a on a, <laughs> a negative note but no. you know we don't know when when or if we're, we're going to see any more racetracks built in this country and with the pandemic and all the fallout and and you know steve and haskin and i had said you know one of the, one of the things that's probably been to the detriment of horse racing over the last 20 years is so much of the handle leaving the track and going to off track and ADWs. But that's probably the saving grace during this time in that most of the handle already is coming from off the track and going to the track is considered a luxury at this time. And depending on what area of the country you live in. Um, So it's just uh, the dynamics are, are so, are so different. And, uh, I, you know, I really, I, I'm not naive enough to think that I wouldn't miss all the modern uh, amenities that we have now. Right. <laughs> to go back to the, you know, the the the, the days of Sir Barton or, or even the days of Citation. But man, it'd be nice to go for a day just to kind of see see racing when everybody was dressed up and it was you know, fifty thousand people at the races and and they were betting with bookmakers and and uh, oh, yeah. just the whole. Um, the spectacle of, of it, where we're, you know, where we were, where racing was one of the top sports. It was, you know, racing and baseball and boxing, and uh, um, you know, just to, to go back to the heyday, and, and uh, you know, unless we get a, a hot tub time machine or something, that's probably <laughs> not going to happen. But uh, no. so you know, the, the the other the other way that we can kind of do that is is through books like yours, and and thank you for doing the research and and uh, and writing about these horses, and you know, the Triple Crown is is a good place to start because uh, you know because they are recognizable names. I, I've got a, a yeah. painting that my my dad gave me, or a print, a frame print, and. It has all the triple crown winners except the last two, and so there's been in my house wherever I've lived the last decade or two, fifteen years. There's always been um, there's been a picture of Sir Barton and of, of <laughs> Omaha, and, and and so those names, you know, they they live they live in in my house, and uh, yeah. because they won the triple crown, and because. Uh, um, you know they're still recognizable, and you know people can rattle off, "Hey, that these are the only horses that have ever done this." And uh, I mean, it's interesting when you think about this year and, and how everything got screwed up, and the Belmont being first, and then the two uh. months off, and then this, and then that. <laughs> but when you when you really step back and look, there is a really really good horse out there that's only two legs away, and and he seems like he's training really well, and. Yeah. It seems like tis the law is is 
going to have a legitimate shot uh, at doing this. And I know that there will be people that are going to denigrate it because of the, you know, because of the changes and the Belmont not being a mile and a half and being, you right. know, the, 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 you know, the whole thing being kind of in disarray. But the fact of the matter is it's looking at Sir Barton. He, he, you know, his triple crown wasn't exactly like affirmed, uh, or, or secretariats or citations either. So no, and I even had a woman argue with me at one point that it really wasn't the triple crown because it didn't look like the ones like you know it, it wasn't the, the the schedule wasn't the same and the distances weren't the same. And she's like, "Well, he's not a triple crown winner." Uh, what? <laughs> I, was like, I I didn't know how to respond to that because I was like, "Well." Okay, but you know, for these triple crown winners, the calendar had changed, and you know, da 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 da. And I was like, I just wasn't worth the argument. But you know, this year with Tis the Law, it's like, okay, if if he does do it, you know, given the the way that the schedule has been um, moved around and changed, and the distances have kind of been altered just for our extraordinary circumstances, if he does do it, then you know, later. We'll talk about how that factors in with the rest of the 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 you know people or the horses in that club. But if he does do it, bully because you know what, it'll be a bright spot that, that's, in this year. That's true, and and uh, I'm rooting for him to do it because Barkley Tag is my friend, and he's been my friend yes. for a long time. And even though I make fun of him and I tell him that <laughs> <laughs> his first boss was George Washington, he. Um, <laughs> He he is uh, a, a really uh, consummate horseman. He, this is his entire life, and yeah. it has been for a long time. He does a great job, and he deserves it. And uh, I'm hoping that if he does do enough to to win this, this triple crown, however um, different it is, I, I would think that maybe that would help Barkley's case to uh, to maybe get elected thing. to the Hall of Fame. So. I, I it would definitely go a long way, but I know that Barkley's done quite a bit already that would make him certainly Hall of Fame worthy with Sunnyside and his other champions that he's had. But I know I'm rooting for Tisbala, and I'm an unabashed you know Tisbala person on social media, so <laughs> yeah. I want to see him do it too. I mean, it's still a challenge. There's the you know the the time between the races is. is is almost a challenge in that uh, yeah. as sharp as he has been all year, and he has been sharp the entire year, the whole calendar year. He started out early this year, and to maintain that form, um, essentially to almost you know through, through October, that that in itself is is a feat. And um, there are some pretty good horses out there, but yeah. I think he is certainly the uh, to me at least he's the the leader and uh, at this point clear leader. Um, I have to root for Uncle Chuck because of the name, but um, <laughs> he's he's got a ways to go to catch up to Tis the Law. But uh, yeah. but we'll see. And Jennifer, I really appreciate uh, your giving us your time today and, and talking Absolutely. about Sir Barton, a, a horse that a lot of people maybe have, have heard the name but really didn't know a whole lot about him. Yes, anytime. I'm always happy to talk anything horse racing history. It's a, it's a passion project of mine to have worked on Sir Barton, and now that it's my job, 
you know, forever. <laughs> I really, I really love this job. It's, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful thing to be doing. So I appreciate the, the opportunity. Well, thank you for your time. We appreciate it. And uh, we definitely, once you get your other book done, we'll have you back on to talk about that. And uh, I'm sure we'll have you on um, on other segments. And uh, we may even give you a mission or two and send you off on a, on a, on a search because you're a researcher and you're a historian and, and you're you were like the only one we know. So yeah, I'm happy to do any, I'm happy to do anything you need. You can uh, you can be I'm currently the, tracking down hoist the flag stuff. So you have something you want me to find out? I'll do my best. Very good. You can be the the official going in circles podcast historian. <laughs> okay, sounds great. <laughs> All right, Jennifer. Thank you. Thanks, Chuck. That was Jennifer Kelly. She's written a book about Sir Barton, who was the first Triple Crown winner. Who uh, whose series of wins kind of changed the course of history of racing. And uh, it's nice that uh, there's there's a book about it and uh, people can read about uh, about his career and his, his life and uh, um, just uh, kind of being amazed at, at how, different, uh, how different things were back then. Unfortunately, we got knocked off the air today by forces beyond our control but um obviously if you've listened this far you you've figured out where the podcast is and and we are going to have uh, a couple more shows this week uh later on thursday and friday um we're gonna have a couple podcasts and we also are going to have next week um we're gonna we have uh I've, i've acquired or actually acquired. I've I've found some some racing memorabilia that I've had that's been stuffed away in a box and I've moved a bunch of times, so I've I've found it and uh we're gonna give it away. Some of it. Um next week we're gonna have a contest and the prize is going to be a a Saratoga giveaway bag from the nineties, a brand new one, never used. So it's uh, it's actually nice. It's a lot nicer than some of the stuff they have now. So that'll be next week. Uh, if you go on the uh, the Facebook page or our Twitter page, there'll be some information on on how to enter into that. And uh, I'm working on a website for this uh, podcast, and it's taken some time because I am learning very slowly. My learning curve is 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 very long unfortunately with computer stuff but um uh what i want to do is i want to be able to to put some some things down uh, on the website so that when you listen to the podcast you can also look up uh and and maybe pp's pictures uh and 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 talk about and see the things the visual aids to help uh explain some of the things we talk about because especially when when you talk about um races and past performances it, it's so much easier to to see it in front of you as well as, as listen to it so so hopefully by next week i've got that uh that thing set up and um we uh we are going to try next week to be live again but um so far uh you know things have conspired against us but i know casey's gonna hang in there so we will be uh, we will be back next Tuesday, and we should be uh, we should have another show on Thursday and then Friday. We have uh, 
an up and coming trainer we're going to talk to and introduce you to. And uh, thank you for listening to uh, to Going in Circles. And um, you have a good day. This is the Going in Circles podcast, hosted by Horseman Chuck Simon. To become a sponsor, to suggest topics, or for questions, email Going in Circles podcast at gmail.com.